We're in Revelation chapter five today. The actual song we're gonna look at is in verses 12 through 13, but we're gonna start in verse one. And before I get there, I wanna just briefly cite a very different movie than uh, Lady and the Tramp. This is not a movie for kids at all, but in the movie Apocalypse Now, some of you are like, yeah, you're right, not a Disney movie at all. So Captain Willard is this American officer who's headed down this river in Vietnam to search to find and to terminate an American colonel who has gone, quote unquote, off the reservation. And on the way, uh, late in the movie, he, he hits this spot in the river where there's, a, there's an American installation and he sees nothing but chaos. He gets off the boat, he goes and checks things out. There's enemy mortars exploding left and right. All the soldiers are inside a bunker. They're not doing anything. There's this one guy all by himself out in a trench, just randomly firing a machine gun into the night. And he walks up to him and he says, hey, soldier, who's the commanding officer around him? And the guy turns and says, ain't you? And then goes back to firing his gun. And I I cite that because sometimes life on earth feels exactly like that. Like we've wandered into a war zone. There's chaos all around us. There's destruction all around us. And nobody is taking responsibility. Nobody says, rally to me and I will show you the way. But the book of Revelation was written for that exact purpose. Despite what you've been told, the book of Revelation wasn't written so that preachers can get rich selling books. It wasn't written so that you and I could watch the news and try to figure out what was going on in the world. I think we make a mistake when we use the Revelation or the scriptures in that way. Revelation was written to say, there is someone in charge. There is someone responsible. And I want to tell you why that's good news. It was written to a group of people 2,000 years ago who were oppressed who were outnumbered, who were discouraged, and who were just about to experience real persecution from the Roman Empire. And it was Jesus saying, let me tell you how the story ends. Let me tell you what's going on behind the curtain, behind the scenes where you can't see, and what I'm doing to reconcile this world to God. And so the book of Revelation has more worship in it than any book of the Bible other than Psalms, and we're going to look at one of those songs today. So we'll start with chapter 5, verse 1. This is John in the throne room of heaven doing his best to describe what he sees there. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. If you've ever read Revelation, or if you've ever even heard of Revelation, you probably know it's a book full of very, very deep symbolism. And there's all kinds of debates on what those symbols mean. Uh, I think the reason why it's written that way, frankly, is because in that time, the people who first received it were oppressed, were persecuted. If the Roman government got hold of that document, they might see it as a a revolutionary kind of thing, as a treasonous document. And so it had to be in, in a sort of code so that the Romans wouldn't know what it meant. But the Christians who first read it would have known because most of these symbols are references to things in the Old Testament, as we'll see in a minute. And some of them are references to things that'll happen later in the book, like the scroll. The scroll that's in the hand of God in that opening segment of chapter five. What does it represent? Well, if you go on and read chapter five, you find out those seven seals. And by the way, when I say seals, just picture a big piece of wax stamped with a a letter or an initial. Seven of them on this scroll written on front and back, which is unusual for that time, means that the scroll was full of information. 
Every time one of those seals is broken, something happens on earth. Every time one of those seals gets broken, there's judgment that gets poured out on earth. Evil takes a hit. The side of righteousness gets ahead. When he gets to the seventh seal and he breaks it, at first nothing happens. And then these seven angels step forward with their seven trumpets. And then one by one, they blow their trumpets. And every time a trumpet is blown, again, every time a trumpet in heaven sounds off, there is judgment on earth. Again, evil is taking a hit. Judgment is happening. Things are being set right. And when the, fa- when the final trumpet is blown in chapter 11, verse 15, there's this announcement in the throne room of heaven that says, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So in other words, the scroll is the plan that leads to the end of this present age and the start of the new age. The end of the way things are now and the beginning of when things start getting better. The plan, God's plan for redeeming this world and making things right. So it's no wonder that John is weeping. Because when someone says, who is worthy to open the scroll? And at first no one steps forward. It's like being in a battle zone and someone saying, who's in charge here? And everybody's saying, not me. Aren't you? Aren't you? John is weeping because he looks at our world and he says, If nobody's going to step forward and take this scroll, then things are going to stay exactly the way they are forever, and I can't live that way. This world can't survive that way. And that's a reason to weep. But notice what happens next. Chapter 5, verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. These are the elders, the, the guys who stand around the throne of God constantly. One of them puts his hand on his shoulder as he's he's just prostrate with grief. Weep no more. Behold, The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So John turns to see this lion that this elder is telling him about and instead sees a lamb. Now, this imagery, again, is straight from the Old Testament. So the original readers would have known exactly what John is saying because they knew the Old Testament prophesied there would be a lion from the tribe of Judah, and that's the Messiah. And think about that image of a lion, right? If you're in a, if you're in a fight and one side has lions and the other one doesn't, I'm on the lion side, right? Aren't you? And even in our fiction, we look to lions as this heroic, majestic character. Think about the Lion King. Think about Aslan in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. And so the image of a lion of Judah means he's going to be the defender of God's glory and the defender of God's people. The idea of the root of David, that's, that's not a term we use quite as often, but in that time, it was just as exciting because they remembered David as the greatest king their nation had ever had. When David was king of Israel, they never lost a battle. They, they never were invaded. They, they won every encounter they, they, they encountered and they knew nothing but victory. And this is the root of David. This is the one who gave him his power. And so when he shows up, he'll be even greater. John looks to see this messianic figure and sees instead a slaughtered lamb, a lamb covered in blood because he's been ritually sacrificed for the day of Passover. Y'all, I raised raised sheep when I was in 4-H. After a while, I got tired of them because sheep just aren't that interesting. I'm sorry. They're adorable on somebody else's pasture. They're, they're, they're woolly and they look like little cotton balls on legs, but they're not very smart and they're not, they're not interesting. And, and, and so, you know, the, it's no wonder there aren't any fictional stories of heroic lambs that I know of. This is the only heroic lamb I'm aware of, and it's Jesus. Because remember, 
when John the Baptist was the most popular man in Israel and everybody was going to see him and thinking, is this the one? Is he the guy? And all of a sudden Jesus comes walking up and he says, hey, everybody, there he is. That's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Again, the lamb imagery would have been very familiar. As familiar as Christmas trees and Santa Claus are to us, that would have been Passover to Israelites every spring. From the time you were born in that country, you would have known every spring your your dad would get a lamb or grow a lamb, raise one or or buy one and and slaughter it there in the home and, and you would roast it and eat it together as your Passover feast. And it was a reminder to you of the day when your forefathers took unblemished lambs and killed them and and put the blood of those lambs on the doorpost of your house so that the, the death angel would pass you by. A lamb had to die so you could go free. And so Jesus, this, this lamb, this humble picture of, of, of a simple blue-collar guy, this, this forgiving teacher, this gracious healer, walks confidently up to the God of the universe when no one else will and just boldly takes the scroll from his hand and he's saying, I am worthy. I can do it. No one else can. I take responsibility for this broken world. I didn't break it, but I can fix it and it will be done. And then the song begins and it starts with the, with the people around the throne begin singing to his glory and praise. And then in verse 11, it says, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So the angels of heaven, more than you can count, Stand there in their glory, praising the Lord. They've picked up this song that started around the throne. And then it starts to filter down to earth. And look what happens next, verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So when Jesus takes that scroll, when Jesus says, this world will be fixed and I'm the one to do it, That's when this spontaneous worship service breaks out and it starts in the throne room itself and it ends up on earth where every living creature praises him because he is worthy. But here's the question. Uh, By the way, let me just stop there. Some of you are aware of this, but there's something going on right now in a little town in Kentucky where there's a little Methodist college called Asbury. A couple of weeks ago, after a, a regular chapel service, Some of the students just gathered up at front just to continue the service and praying and praising God. And it's still going. And since then, the the pews have been packed with students and with others, with people from around the world coming to see what's going on. We're wondering if this is a, a genuine revival of the Holy Spirit. I believe that it is. And if you're aware of that, I hope you're praying for that. And if you're not, Check it out. It's all over the internet and and pray that God would spread that spirit of revival throughout our country. And when I think about that, I think about what's happening here, how it starts in the throne room and then it spreads as suddenly people who are doing other things, suddenly they're focused on the glory of God and it changes them forever. So the question now is, why is Jesus worthy? They say Jesus is the only one worthy. What makes him worthy? It's not because he's so powerful, he spoke a world into existence. 
It's not because he's so righteous. He was able to live uh, on this earth without sinning even once. None of us can do that, but he did. But it's not because of that. It's not even because of his divinity, because he has all this divine glory about him. That's not what makes him worthy. According to the song, what makes him worthy is because he was slain. Because he died. You may never have thought about it this way, but if Jesus had done everything he did, lived a perfect sinless life, worked miracles, taught the most amazing moral teachings that the world has ever seen, but he diverted around the cross and chose not to die for our sins, we'd still be lost. Do you know that? Everything that Jesus did, everything that he stood for would have not benefited us eternally unless he went to the cross and our world would still be on a trajectory, a trajectory toward, for absolute destruction in the end. And it's because the problem in our world isn't a lack of power, it's not a lack of knowledge, it's not even a lack of religion. The problem in our world is that we've sinned. You want to know what the real problem with our world is? Look in the mirror, it's us. And until we're fixed, this world can't be fixed. And the only thing that can fix us is the atoning death of a sinless Savior. He's the son of suffering, and that makes him worthy, and that means nobody else is. So I want to ask you a difficult question, and, and a question that I know you know the answer to. I know you know what the right answer is because you're sitting in a, in a Christian church right now, but I don't, want you to, I don't want you to fixate on what the quote-unquote right answer is. I want you to ask yourself the, true, the truth of who you are. Who are you trusting in right now? Trusting in to fix your problems? Trusting in to bring meaning to your life? Trusting in to bring order to our world? Because there's a lot of good things that we put our hope into that can't bear that weight. If you're single and you want to be married someday, that's a good thing. If that's God's will for you, wonderful. But if you're hoping that your soulmate is out there. And if you just discover them and you fall in love with them, all your dreams will come true. I can tell you it doesn't work that way. That is a fairy tale that is not true. I married the right person. There was no righter person I could have married, but that's not enough. She can't bear that weight and I can't bear that weight for her. If you have kids or you hope to have kids someday, and you're thinking, you know, if I can just play my cards right, then I will always be the center of their world. And it'll be so wonderful because I'll always have these people who look at me with these beautiful eyes that, that say that I'm so important and so special. And it doesn't work that way. Parenting is great, but it doesn't work that way. If you're hoping that if you really work hard and achieve and get to the top of your career field, that you will feel validated and the world will look at you with this, these eyes of respect and you'll be a success in every way, I can tell you, you're going to be disappointed. I hope you do succeed in whatever it is you do, but it won't be enough. If you're hoping that your political ideology is the answer, if you can just work hard enough to get the right people elected, people who think like you do, then this country will be solved. This country will be fixed. You're putting way too much authority in the power of mere human beings who are sinners just like you. And even if they are, quote unquote, the right people, they can't fix the problems with this country or this world. If you hope that if you could just afford these things that would make you happy, that you could achieve real lasting happiness. Well, you're in for disappointment too. In fact, God 
in one of his parables, Jesus calls that kind of thinking foolish. A person who thinks that way is a fool. Because, see, the truth is, your boyfriend or girlfriend, your husband or wife, they didn't die for your sins. Your kids won't either. Try asking your boss at work to die for you. Your job won't do that. Neither will your political party or your money. Only he will. Only he has. Only he is worthy. Those other things are good, can be good, as long as he is on the throne of your heart. As long as he's the one you trust to settle what's wrong in this world and in your life. So is he your commanding officer? Is he the one who calls the shots? Because he alone is worthy. And that means not only can he fix you, he will fix this world. So I had a friend years ago, uh, was having surgery and woke up in the surgery. They had him under general anesthetic. Now it was a day surgery, so it wasn't quote unquote major. But I got to tell you, anytime they put you to sleep and they cut you open, that's major to me, right? And my friend lifts his head up and he sees, and fortunately he was still so sedated, it felt like a dream where these masked strangers were poking around in his innards. But he, he, he leans his head up and the surgeon goes, oh, hey, um, let me tell you what I'm doing right now and sort of starts to explain things. And then he falls back asleep. Now, I think about that story when I think about how sometimes it seems that's what's going on in our world. We're in this waking nightmare where someone is just carving this world up and we can't figure out what's going on. If you were having surgery and you were wide awake through the whole thing, it would be terrifying unless you really, really trusted the surgeon, right? Well, I got to tell you, the one who is behind the scenes working on this world to fix things, you can trust him. You can trust him absolutely. And that's Jesus. So I want to tell you I want to give you two challenges, and the first one is now, and the second one will be after we sing again. But the first one is, I want you to pray to the Lord on a consistent basis and say, I trust you, Jesus. I trust you, Lord Jesus. I trust you with everything. I trust you with whatever it is that is against me right now, whatever it is that has me stressed out, whatever it is that I look at the world and I'm so brokenhearted about, I trust you to fix it. And a lot of you would say, well, Jeff, I've tried that, but I'm still so afraid. I want to give you a word of encouragement, okay? You hear me? The most common command in Scripture is do not fear. I'm going to do a whole series on this later this year, Lord willing. That does not mean that you are a sinner if you feel fear, if you feel anxiety, if you feel worry that you're a sinner against God. Listen to me. You can't help what you feel. That's not sin. The opposite of faith isn't fear. The opposite of faith is disobedience. So faith is, even when you feel afraid, you do the right thing. Even when you feel afraid, you don't let it steal your joy. Even when you feel afraid, you obey the Lord and you accomplish his purposes. I got two examples. Think about, we learned it as little kids, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In the, in, in the presence of uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on earth, and he's screaming at the top of his lungs, and if you boys do not bow down right now and worship this idol that I have made like everybody else has, then I'm going to throw you into this fiery furnace. You cannot imagine how painful it's going to be to die that way. And what do those three boys say? Anybody remember? They say, listen, O king, we know that our God is able to rescue us from you. But if he does not, you know what that means? That means that these three guys had no idea whether God was going to rescue them or not. For all they knew, they were about to be burned alive. If he does not, we're still not going to bow. 
They had fear, but they were going to obey no matter what. That's faith. That's trust. And then there's the story of Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. Picture him face down in the dirt, praying to the Father, knowing that right now, even as he's praying, the 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 priests are gathering the temple guard together. They're lighting their torches. They're sharpening their swords. They're on their way across the Kidron Valley and they're going to arrest him. Then he's going to be beaten. He's going to be falsely accused. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be crucified. In the next 12 hours, that's what's going to happen. And he's praying to the Father. He's just sharing his heart. He's saying, Lord, I don't want this to happen. Lord, if there's some other way, Father, for this cup to pass from me, let it happen. But not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was afraid. Not of the, the, the whip and the, the nails and the spear. He was afraid of taking on the sin of humanity and experiencing the full wrath of God against that sin. But he said, if that's what I got to do, I will do it. And remember, when they showed up with their torches and their swords, what did Jesus do? He didn't hide. He didn't run. He walked right into the midst of them and said, I'm the one you're looking for. Now that's faith. And he can give us that faith. What I'm telling you to do is to say, Lord... I trust you. Whatever you tell me to do, I'll do. I'm going to trust you to fix these problems. So I said I had two challenges, and I ha- here's the second one. Yes, we trust Jesus with the problems we're facing. We trust Jesus with the problems in our world. But I want you to, I want you to say something else to him this morning, and that is, Jesus, be Lord of all my life. Be Lord of everything. In a minute, we're going to sing a, a song that's kind of a, a riff on an old hymn that talks about how we're all prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love. And that's the the truth. I want you to know how profound that is because we have this idea as Christians, especially evangelical Christians, right? Uh, Because everything is stressed on come to the altar, give your heart to Jesus, get baptized. And absolutely, you need to make that decision. But we put so much emphasis on that initial decision for Christ, we pretend that that's, once you're in the club, so to speak, that's all the work there needs to be done. And the truth is, when we get saved, whether we're nine or whether we're 99, at that moment, I believe, if you're truly saved, you have given your whole heart to him. The thing is, the Bible calls that a living sacrifice. And the thing about a living sacrifice is it has a tendency to crawl off the altar. We have a tendency as God's people over time to start taking things back from God that we've previously given him. And we don't do this consciously, but we start to say, in essence, yeah, Jesus, I know you're capable of saving my soul, forgiving my sins, getting me into heaven when I die, but I'm not so sure you're capable of giving me the kind of happiness that I'm looking for in this world. So I need to take that aspect of my life back. I need to do it my way because I don't trust you to give me what I'm looking for. What a foolish decision that would be. I want you to to ask the Holy Spirit to do a ruthless inventory of your life by just saying, Lord, I want you to be Lord of everything. Jesus, I want you to take control of everything and find out what it is you've been holding in that little strong box in your heart and not allowing him access to. And I'll admit, there's risk there. There's risk anytime you trust anybody. You get on a bus, you get on a plane, you let a doctor work on you. You've got to trust that person. Most of the time you're trusting someone you don't even know. And yeah, when you trust God, 
Trust him with your kids? Well, what happens if he calls them all to the mission field and you rarely see them? Trust him with your money? Well, what happens if he calls you to be extraordinarily generous and, and you end up with less in their bank account than you had before? Trust him with your reputation? Stop ruthlessly guarding how others look at you and instead just do whatever Jesus tells you, no matter what people think? Well, yeah, there's going to be some people that might decide you're a religious nut. But we trust in people all the time. Why not trust in the one who's so powerful he created the whole world and so wise that he's never made a single bad decision and, and loves you so much that he literally went through hell on earth so you wouldn't have to because he wanted to spend eternity with you. That's how much he loves you. I think it's safe to trust in someone like that. I think it's safe to trust him like you trust nobody else and to give him full access. He is worthy and no one else is. So, what do you say?